So, welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesanov. This week, I have a wonderful guest, Rosalind Palmer. Rosalind is a leading specialist in hypnotherapy, rapid transformational therapy, and coaching. She's also a broadcaster, a newspaper columnist, and a regular media contributor to a number of online publications on health and well-being. Rosalind's life didn't always have this profile. From top of the capitalist tree through disease, despair, and divorce, Rosalind is not only a survivor, but a thriver. And her first book, Reset, just about to come onto the market, shows you how you can get your life back on track. So, Rosalind, welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on the program. It's an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed your book. Um, first of all, it's beautifully written. It's uh, extremely inspirational, and I think it's also extraordinarily real. Um, I think it's something you, you read a lot of self-help books these days, and the advice that they give you is either A, extraordinarily hard work, or I sometimes get the feeling that people just feel this is just out of my league. But your story is is also a little bit of story of, of what many of us are going through. It's a real story. It's a person's story. So what, what actually inspired you to write this book and get your story out there? Was that it? Because you can really talk to people on that level? Yeah. So I think you will see from reading the book that for many years I was what was the power behind the throne. Um, I was a leading PR consultant. I had a leading PR agency and in the 90s, my clients were the likes of Tony Robbins and Edward de Bono and all the leading motivational gurus of the time and, and many, many more people. And I was often ghosting articles on their behalf or really handling their, their image and their media image and their output. And I think I always felt that that was my role, you know, sort of in the wings, really. Then so much happened in my life, as you've already um, remarked upon. I went from eight-bedroom house in London and a life that looked like, you know, I had it all front cover of glossy magazines because I was a really big success in PR, to moving to the Bahamas, which is a story in itself, really, and ending up in an out island on a 10-acre farm with a thousand palm trees, a pink sand beach surrounded by drug dealers and billionaires. Um, and Interesting combination. Much, <laughs> yeah, but pretty much losing losing everything that had become my former identity. Um, everything imploded um, through disease, cancer, divorce, etc. And so it wasn't always easy coming through it. And yet I did effectively reinvent and reset myself, often with help, external help, obviously, over and over again. And as life moved on, uh, I got to the point where if I had money for everybody who said to me once they got to know me, wow, you should really write a book about your life. Um, this was repeated so many times, particularly over probably about the last 15 years. Um, and again, with that realization that I'd always been the power behind the throne, also that I, I do write, I write a lot. Um, I've always written in a PR and journalistic and blogging capacity. Um, it really became very apparent to me, particularly last year, where I did quite a lot of work on myself after my second divorce and went to Lifebook, which is run by John and Missy Butcher, and you really do drill down about what what makes me me. What do I want in my life? What am I no longer willing to put up with? I had to leave that course going, okay, I'm going to write the book. I am finally going to write the book. Yeah. And so the book is, is it aimed my primarily at women or a specific age group? Or is it is it a manual for life for anybody? It. It is a manual for life. I do really speak because obviously I occupy that territory myself 
about the menopausal um, woman of a certain age, the squeezed middle, um, as I like to call my archetypal client, burnt out Barbara, um, the women who are what's called a club sandwich or even a double club sandwich, where they're possibly juggling high profile careers, look like they've got it all going on. They're trying to keep their marriage together there self together there's all that pressure to look good be good they've got children who possibly are at university or even older they may even have grandchildren as well and often to add to that mix they have aging parents I have many many girlfriends who have elderly parents who are now needing you know a lot of care as well and they're called the squeezed middle and it's just exhausting. You know, there's nothing left for them. And of course, stress can happen at any age. And I refer back in the book to being depressed in my 20s. I I, I was, I was very depressed in my 20s. And clearly, as a therapist, a lot of my clients are men. But I think my heart and the the woman I was speaking to, the tone of voice whilst writing this book is Burnt Out Barbara. <laughs> I so identify with Burnt Out Barbara. I mean, you know, I'm exactly in that generation and had exactly similar experiences. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between your experiences and, and mine. I found that actually kind of interesting. Um one thing that actually caught my attention in the book was one passage, perhaps for you, it was a little bit of a throwaway, but for me, it was actually really, really profound, was that you describe an incident where you were attacked in, in a, I think it was in a car park where somebody tried to, to attack you in the car and how you actually managed to get away. And that had a very positive influence. And I found that really interesting because a very similar thing happened to me. I was 15 when I was attacked walking down the street and I also managed to get away through, through, and, um, you know, a bit of quick thinking. And, and I discovered retroactively that that was, had been a super empowering experience and that it had given me the strength to understand that even faced with physical attack, that, you know, I, if I, all I had to do was just keep my head together and I could get out of this and fight and, and survive. And I think that for a lot of people, they're missing that kind of positive experience or perhaps it happens and they don't recognize it. Can you address that a little bit? Because I think sometimes that's so important that you have something positive where you behaved in an optimal way to, to kind of give you strength to carry on. I think that's very uh, astute of you to pick up on that, actually. And, of course, I didn't dwell on it in the book. No, you just mentioned it, but I think it's a very powerful statement. Um, (laughs) But, yes, I think it took me quite some time to really retrospectively realise that that had been what that experience had done for me. And, And as you read it in the book, you will remember that it was actually almost in two parts because the the attack happened when I was around about 24. Um, It was somewhat dismissed, to be honest, by the the police, etc., for the severity of it. And I think because I'd come through it um, and just sort of carried on, um, I don't think they'd even realised just how severe it was. It wasn't until about 10 years later that I saw a photo fit Um, picture on the front page of the Sun newspaper with a headline, is this Britain's biggest serial rapist, that I recognised my attacker. And then by being interviewed by Scotland Yard, obviously I came forward. I was told that of all the women who came forward, I was probably one of only three who was, you know, genuinely, because I, I was able to tell them things. So I think it was that 10 years on that I suddenly looked back and thought, wow, that was A, a lucky escape, but B, maybe not a lucky escape. I think it was a defining moment. You're absolutely right. I think a lot of people are fearful about what would happen if they were faced with a crisis. You know, when you you look at those aeroplane disaster movies, etc. I think a lot of people's deepest fear is that they would be the one to freeze or they would be the one not to be empowered. And my mantra over and over again, and obviously dealing with clients, is 
you have that power within you. Trust yourself, tap back into yourself. We are more powerful, we are more amazing than we often even dare to realize. And of course, going one step beyond as a therapist, and you'll be able to relate to this, when people have a difficult traumatic experience, sometimes it does knock them for six and they do lose their confidence or it can change their whole world view. And of course, through the kind of therapy we do now, we are able to effectively, you know, it's never too late to fix that because you can actually go back to that time and look at it through those different eyes and look at it through those eyes of, um, but you did come through it and, you know, you don't need to carry that with you any longer. You know, there's that lovely analogy in my book of the monks crossing the river and, you know, the one monk says to the other, you know, why did you carry that woman across? And he says, well, I left her at the riverbank. So I I think that's incredibly astute of you because, yes, it very much defined me. Uh, Ten years on, I was able to retroactively look back and go, wow, that really did define me. And it was even more empowering. And now I'm able to work with other people who maybe didn't have the same reaction at time they are in a crisis and go let's revisit that and let's let's change the meaning for you let's change how that is and actually that will free you yeah absolutely can't could not agree more because we we just have a negativity bias you know we we focus so much on all the things that don't work and very rarely sometimes take the lessons from those times where where we did well um they sort of disappear in the background it's very interesting your story um on the one hand, you start and you talk about being a PR magnet um, and then a therapist. And the connection isn't immediately obvious. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? How did that happen? Yes. In fact, when I first last year came out of LifeBook and was determined I was going to write a book, my first working title was actually The Accidental Therapist. <laughs> Brilliant um, title. Can I steal it? Yeah. <laughs> No, I think I've actually. Uh, I think I've actually got it as a because I think if you know if ever the book or the the movie comes out, that would be a great title. So, um, yes, I, it did. It was synchronicity, and I do talk about synchronicity and happen chance in my book. And you know, there's a great saying, isn't there, that luck is when opportunity, uh, when preparation meets opportunity. I've done a lot of preparations. <laughs> And the opportunity arose. So it seemed like a happen chance or synchronicity um, event when I was invited by Marissa Peer to train on her very first rapid transformational therapy course. Um, But again, looking back, I see that I had many great transferable skills that transferred from my former PR and marketing stroke journalism career into therapy so to arrive at how I became a therapist Marissa who has 30 years experience in her unique fusion of clinical hypnotherapy CBT NLP and psychotherapy and was arguably the world's leading hypnotherapist developed her methodology into a school and I've known Marissa since the early 90s I was at Tony Robbins life mastery course in Maui Hawaii I was doing his PR I had to climb a very high telegraph pole and jump off the top I was fine with the firewalks I was not fine with the telegraph pole (laughs) and I was pretty much frozen at the bottom of it and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said I can hypnotize you up that pole enter Marissa Pierce I then saw her in the 90s as a client because I was having money blocks whilst running my agency. Worked beautifully, worked brilliantly. I remained friends. And when she decided to launch her first program, she invited people who she felt would make great therapists. So I have to thank her that she saw something in me as a therapist that I hadn't even seen in myself at that time. Although I was at a crossroads, uh, I was going just through my second divorce. Um, I'd been head of marketing for an international charity for quite some time. And I was definitely having a what next phase in my life. 
and had thought about coaching. And I'm, I'm also a coach, as you know. It had been a natural segue for me to move into business coaching or personal coaching. And when the email dropped, I thought, why not? Why not? Sounds interesting. Let's give it a go. Um, I think it's fair to say I took to it like a duck to water. Um, I had a grounding in hypnotherapy in the 90s when I did NLP with Richard Bandler and Paul McKenna did a hypnotherapy edition. I worked for a training and development company who have a bespoke training coaching methodology and was trained in that. I obviously ran a company and did a lot of training. So and worked with some of the world's leading personal development gurus. So I definitely had that grounding. Uh, Also, I've had a lot of therapy. (laughs) I have been a client many, many times for many Yeah, physician, heal thyself, absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, I've seen the good and I've seen the bad and I've seen what worked. I was on uh, antidepressants and sleeping tablets for a long time. So I've seen how pharma doesn't necessarily address it. So having been through that on a personal level, it makes me highly empathetic. Um, I took to the therapy very well because the transferable skills are with my background in NLP and articulate and an understanding about words and communication, obviously hypnotherapy and a lot of what we do is communicating with that person at both a conscious and a subconscious level and helping them to do the same. I, you know, relatively academic, so I've enjoyed the studying and academic side of it. And in PR, you you do well by creating rapport, by reading people, by understanding people. So, yeah, the accidental therapist arrived. <laughs> One thing that I think that's kind of important about that is that, um, you know, you read it everywhere these days that people are struggling to find purpose. It's it's a big thing. Um, perhaps in the days where where we were much more occupied with putting a roof over our heads and having food on the table, that wasn't such an issue. But you know, modern man, essentially, a third, you know, first world man, certainly has has relatively a lot of time on their hands these days. And I think we all end up sort of pursuing goals and dreams that we've been told are the right thing to go for. Like your PR career was a classic example of that. And so many people if they're fortunate enough, of course, to be successful, and a lot of us are these days, but you still get to that point where you just think, I have the trappings, but there's still something missing. Do you think part of actually your journey ending up now as a therapist is absolutely that, that that's a job really with purpose, that you're serving and that you're giving back, you're sharing of yourself. It's not an empty goal, if you like. I totally do. And do you know what the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was? Having cancer and losing most of my money. And I've heard that so often. Really expand on that because I think it's a huge point. At the time, because when I had an eight-bedroom house and all the trappings of success in London, including a company, a personal trainer, you name it, all the rest of it. I even had a driver at one time. Um, and I was doing the 80 hour weeks and I was burnt out, Barbara, and I would lie awake at night feeling like I was spinning plates on poles. I was very, very deeply unhappy. I I didn't feel I was living my life's purpose. Um, I was successful. Yeah. But I would do things to fill myself up, like buy expensive clothes that I hardly wore, I probably drank too much. It was part of the territory of being in PR, particularly in the 90s. Um, I'd go to expensive health farms just because I could. And I was empty inside. And when I the cancer came and I moved to the out island and lived an incredibly simple life, it was much more Bear grills than that. We lived in a wooden farmhouse with bare floors and palmetto palm on the walls and didn't even have any air conditioning. And I had the two children who were pretty much almost 
running wild, you know, getting shoes on their feet was probably an achievement most days. Um, I got up with the sun and went to bed with the sun. I was having cancer treatment in America, so I was flying in and out quite a lot. And during that time, my life imploded. My father had a stroke. My mother got terminal pancreatic cancer. And I found out that a lot of the money, the bedrock, the thing I thought I'd sacrificed my health for actually wasn't there. Um, yeah. And when you end up in that place, you really have to go, well, what next? And who am I? What makes me tick? What makes me happy? There was a time when it had to be survival. I was a single unemployed mother for a while. That wasn't easy or fun. And, you know, every day you're dealing with survival. And then I reinvented myself. And once I did, particularly when I got to the charity and I spent a lot of time in Africa and Asia with tribal people in very remote areas because I worked for the leprosy mission. So people with leprosy are arguably some of the most persecuted, marginalized, stigmatized people in the world. Um, I saw a lot and I spent a lot of time in tribal communities and I saw that whilst people didn't have material things and I'm not poo-pooing, trust me, water, electricity um and those people deserve it and they'd love it um but they have community they have a sense of self they have a sense of connection they have a sense of belonging they have a sense of meaning they sit and watch the sunrise some days and and it's all the things that a lot of self-help books talk about but I lived it I've discovered it and now I really do advocate it yeah Absolutely. Cancer, horrible, horrible diagnosis was probably one of the worst diagnoses because it, it just it, it comes with that tombstone that you see in front of your eyes when the doctor tells you. Describe your story a little bit, because I, I, I love your approach to that, particularly when you actually had the follow up checkups and they found that actually it was more than just the one lump that you had noticed yeah. and, and the way that you engaged that resilience, that, that Ros reset mode, yeah. even then, uh, no, it's really commendable. So talk about that because I think that's so important for other people to hear. Thank you. Um, there's actually uh, an article out there on a, a cancer recovery site called Livestrong. I think it's Livestrong, but I can give you the link. And the headline after they interviewed me was cancer was the greatest gift I ever received. And I was very, obviously having left the PR company, thought I'd dodged a bullet, uh, moved to the Bahamas, which was the reason that my ex um, was from there. And we went to wind up his father's company because he died unexpectedly. But I was plunged into this entirely new community in a foreign country with two small children and complete loss of identity. Uh, my ego had gone out the window. I suddenly was no longer asked my opinion at dinner parties um, or anything. And actually, that was awful. That was really um, and I became bulimic at that time because that was obviously my way of coping I would go to the gym for three hours a day and channel all that energy that I had into into just being really fit and um yeah and that was not a happy time at first and when the cancer diagnosis came I'll be honest with you it felt like a really big relief I actually thought the day I got the the diagnosis oh well that's okay I don't need to struggle anymore um that lasted about a day <laughs> um because i'm i'm certainly not a fatalist as you as you know and i i'm not a half glass empty person but there was a feeling of relief uh, and in fact i saw a counselor who's just got back in touch with me because he picked up on my book and i said to him i know you're going to be shocked but i just feel complete relief and he said if you could turn that relief into just completely letting go and peace and being at one with this journey I think you, you're onto something and that's exactly what I did um because the only focus as you say is getting well um it was my diagnosis was the day before good Friday and you know the thought in your head is what's Christmas going to look like you know am I going to be here how, how am I going to see my children grow up 
Um, and so then that became my complete focus, getting well. Um, and I did it in a very holistic way. And again, that's spoken about in the book. Um, I obviously had surgery and I did have radiation treatment, but I completely turned down chemotherapy and a lot of other procedures that were very highly advised for the kind of cancer I had. And instead, we moved to the out island to what was an organic farm that had been mothballed. And we literally lived on the land and the sea. If we couldn't grow it or catch it or somebody else caught it, that was it. I didn't eat it. I didn't have any. So I, I think I was a, a pescatarian vegan. <laughs> if you have to give it, a, if you had to give it a title, that would be apparently what it the most healthy way to live. So yeah, instinctively, you knew what you were doing. <laughs> Totally. And of course, we were living in an out island, which is very rich in um, fauna and flora. And, you know, we had about 11 types of fruit and vegetable on, on our farm and grew it. And we're surrounded by passion fruit and mangoes and carambola cherries. And there's a thing called noni. Um, which is stink apple, and the Bahamians hold it to have anti-carcinogenic properties. Um, and so I distilled my own noni juice and had that every day. Um, I got fit by swimming in the sea, and, and it was just the most spiritual, centered, beautiful time of my life, <laughs> really. Um, yeah, I felt like it was such a gift. I, I connected with my kids. I saw the bigger picture. Um, I only watched positive movies. We didn't have any TV, so we had a, a DVD player. I only read positive or spiritual or uplifting books. I blocked as much negativity out of my life as possible. And I needed it because, you know, my father had the stroke. My mother then got terminal pancreatic cancer. I wasn't just going to my own hospital appointments in America. I was flying four and a half thousand miles to England and seeing one or other of them in hospital appointments. It was, a, you know, I think by most people's standards, a, a challenging time. But that, that centeredness, that this is what life is about really came. Mm-hmm. You describe yourself in your book as a weeble that wobbles and doesn't fall down. I, I had to laugh when I read that because that's actually the description that I receive from a lot of people as well. So for those who don't know what a weeble is, these horrible, nasty plastic little toys that they used to make, which were weighted at the bottom. So if you tipped over the top of the head of this little figure, it would immediately pop back up. So, uh, you know, um, and that, that demands a certain level of resilience. Now, having that myself, and you obviously have it too, um, I don't know where that comes from um, because for me it's always been there. Whatever comes my way, I just deal with it and get on with the next thing. A lot of people get totally crushed, um, and that's absolutely not a criticism. That's just a statement of the way some people behave. Are there any tips that you have for people or perhaps ones that you describe in your book to help build resilience so that people can take life's knocks a little better and actually use them as a, as a win situation, as we talked right at the very beginning, as a positive experience instead of, you know, always getting completely flattened by, by the, the blows that life throws you? Absolutely. And effectively, that, that's what the whole blueprint in the book is about, um, you know, because I talk semi-autobiographically about my own journey. And then I talk about things that have worked for me. And then I go on to talk um, wearing a therapeutic hat about things that might work for other people. I think as a takeaway so that somebody can can own this in their heart, in their mind, what I would say, and I've had some really you know, long nights of the soul. Um, you know, I've, I've really wobbled <laughs> um, before but you that. you didn't fall down, you know. <laughs> the bottom made me ping back up again. Um, two things. First of all, I think always remember that you should have a life of balance. And the easy way to remember that is to hold your hand up. Remember that you have five fingers and there are five F's to a really balanced life. And they are faith, finance, friends, family, and fitness. And it doesn't really matter about the order. But if you take somebody like John Paul Getty, he had finance. He had no faith. 
his family didn't like him. He wasn't very fit in body or mind. And um, what was it like? Yeah, and he didn't have any friends. So not a very wealthy man. Mother Teresa, I mean, fitness, she lived to be over 100. Family, the whole world and the nuns were her family. Um, friends, yes, the world over. Um, and faith, <laughs> unquestionably. I think they're going to make her a saint. And... Finance, arguably not for herself, but she was a great conduit um, to help the poor. So there's a very wealthy woman. And when my life has been out of kilter, when my life has gone wrong, shall we say, let's take the PR days. It was when there was a great emphasis on the finance. And I'm not saying the finance per se is wrong, but it was just that came at the cost of the others. Um I talk about the fact that I finally sold my PR company when I realized I hadn't seen my six-year-old son awake for a week, you know. So that was a aha family moment. I'm really not getting this right. I've always been very good about friends and having friends and keeping friends, and that's been great. Um, fitness, again, I thought I was fit because I was going to the gym. I had a personal trainer. I was watching what I was eating. But obviously the stress, the lack of sleep, you know, that was all, you know, making me, you know, unwell and dis-ease started to set in. And then I stayed thin by being bulimic. So that's not really very healthy. Um, so I looked okay on the outside, but there was stuff going on on the inside. So that's really a fitness in body and mind. And then um, faith. And I've always had a faith and it's changed over the years. Sometimes it's been a more traditional faith and more traditional religion and sometimes more of a spirituality and something just about a greater thing so on that point find out what makes you happy find out what makes you centered for me I've moved to a house on the river I need to be near water I need to, I literally look out onto the river and every morning I go for a walk on the river and if I start to get overwhelmed or weebling, wobbling a bit too much. I go and sit and watch the boats go by. I do yoga. I do meditation. Obviously, I do uh, hypnotherapy. Um, I love reading. I find books very cathartic and, you know, reading. Um, yeah, yoga's my go-to thing. Um, so find what works for you. And it could be as simple as a walk on the river, sitting in the park and watching a bird whilst drinking a really lovely coffee. You need those little reset moments every day, I would say, every day. And they don't have to be huge. I think that's the trouble. I think when people are in a state of overwhelm or unhappiness, they think they've got to do something mega to get out of it. And of course, sometimes that it might need intervention from an external therapist or somebody else, you know, seek that help. Don't be afraid to seek the help, but do the little resets for yourself. You know, for me, I need to get enough sleep. Um, I'm not very good if I don't get more than about seven hours sleep. So, you know, that's a must. Um, so yeah, Remember the five Fs, faith, family, friends, finance, and fitness. Keep a balance. Don't get out of kilter. And remember to reset every day in a little way. And all those little ways will add up to a big way. Very wise advice. I think in this, this crazy world that we live in, um, that, that people don't take those few minutes. And, and perhaps I think women suffer for them that a little more than men, yeah. because I think so many women are very caught up with the being the caregiver for, for everybody other than themselves. So you, you alluded to that before that oh, you know, so yeah, many, right. so many women put themselves right at the bottom of the list. Now, now you've been there. So talk a little bit about that. How, how, how can we look at our, how can the average woman who's dealing with, as you said, children, job, home, husband, family, partner, whatever the constellation is, um, probably elderly parents as well. Uh, I think most of us will go through that period. What's what's your recipe for getting out of that alive and healthy? <laughs> well, the analogy for that one is that on every uh, flight, as you take off and they do the safety warnings, every flight, even if you've flown hundreds of times, they always tell you that in the event of decompression or loss of oxygen in the cabin, 
the oxygen masks will fall and parents must put their oxygen mask on first before their children. They have to do that every flight because it's not human nature, particularly for a mother to naturally not want to look after her children first. You know, you're wired for it, evolutionary programming. But of course, on a plane, if you don't do that, you'll end up unconscious and then so will your children, which is why they have to effectively wire you at the beginning of every flight to do it. That's the message for women. You're so busy giving everybody else the oxygen and taking care of everybody else that you are passing out in the process. You are not getting oxygen yourself. And actually what happens then is rather than being um, a help to everybody or a support to everybody, because you are so depleted yourself, you are literally unconscious or you are in need of whatever needs to put you back together again, it's actually a disservice to both yourself and the people you hold dear and love. And so it's a kind of learned selfishness, if you like, but you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. You being the strongest, happiest, most healthy, well-balanced version of yourself is not only the gift you deserve and that whatever your faith is, God, creation, the universe would want you to be, but also it then serves everybody else so much better. It will make you a better, happier, more productive boss, a better, happier you know, wife who doesn't view sex as another chore because you're exhausted, <laughs> but actually gets her mojo back <laughs> and gets her connection back. So you connect with yourself first and then you're able to connect with everybody else. And so you're right. This does not come naturally, particularly for women and particularly for women of a certain age, because culturally we were brought up. And that's why I mentioned the analogy of the Sunday morning radio show that I actually can't listen anymore because, you know, all those requests going, oh, she's a wonderful wife, she's a wonderful mother, she does everything for everybody, she never thinks of herself and we never tell her we love her. It, it makes me cross. And I'm like, okay, it's lovely that she's getting that now on her birthday, but she, she deserves more than that. I'm visualizing this very unhappy, depleted woman who's probably on antidepressants really feeling her life has no purpose. And then, of course, what happens is the children leave home, the parents die. Suddenly that woman who's given, 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 given of herself for so many years is left going, oh, uh, is this it? Or, you know, where do I go now? And so that is not what the universe wants, um, and it's not a service to anybody. No, quite right. Absolutely. Um, I think it's a, a hugely important point because I think, especially these days, that, that we really have a lot of life left after 50. It's, uh, you know, and when I was young, a 50 year old woman was was already, you know, approaching late maturity, let us say. But now, I mean, 50 is the new 30. I mean, that life is really just so much more, it has so much more to offer and it has a much longer lifespan that when you get to that point of being, as you said, alone, and often, let's face it, the husband's also probably run off with something much younger and that doesn't help. Um, you know, you, I think women fall into the most enormous hole and they don't know what to do. And and that's why I think your book is is an absolute lifeline for women in, in that um, period of their life. So thank you for writing it. The other thing that I love about your book is it's is it's dotted with with gorgeous little quotes from lots of you know life in general. It's not just literature. You, I think your background in English literature really yeah, shows through. Um, who who has influenced you most in your life? I mean, I know Marissa has played a huge part, but perhaps more sort of like um, um, yeah, some some other maybe a literary figure or something. Yeah, I. Um... Well, my favourite book of all time is The Great Gatsby, uh, not just because it's short. <laughs> <laughs> Having done an English literature degree, you did used to groan sometimes when, you know, they got the, you know, massive books out. Um, in The Great Gatsby, it's about a clash of cultures, a clash of classes, um, about 
yeah, identity about who you are. So I've always loved literature and I, I particularly love Jane Austen um, also and, and the Brontes. Um, Charlotte in particular, actually, she's quite a feminist if you actually read it. And Jane Austen, I, my special paper was on, you know, was Jane Austen a feminist or anti-feminist? So I love anything that's empowering or about the human condition. In recent years, my absolute favourite, and I adore him and I follow him on Twitter, is Matt Haig. He's actually from the same hometown as me. And I've seen him twice at the Newark Book Festival where I was actually an interviewer. Sadly, I didn't get to interview him, but I'm working on it for next year. And he has a book called The Humans, which is just beautiful and funny. He also has a couple of self-help type books because he's suffered from stress and anxiety called, I think, Notes from a Small Planet and How to Stay Alive. And they're like both in the top 10 Sunday Times bestsellers list. I love his work. He is so humble. He's been through it. He's so insightful. He's definitely my new favorite. I saw Ruby Wax um, on her Frazzled tour. She talks very candidly about her mental health issues and how she's come through. And she obviously uses humor. Um, I like her. Um, back in the 90s, uh, along with Marissa, it was obviously Tony Robbins because I did his PR and Edward de Bono. I, I quite like the whole, um, you know, logical thinking and parallel thinking. Um, and today, um, I'm a big fan of JJ Virgin, uh, about diet and the sugar diet and her own story. She's incredibly inspirational. And obviously, John and Missy Butcher and Life Book. Um, and I do have a reading list in the back of the book about books that I go to over and over again and people that I acknowledge in the book as, you know, have been a great influence on me. Right. One thing you also mentioned in the book, which again made me, ch- I, I chuckled a lot actually. It's a really enjoyable read. You should definitely read it, uh, listeners. Um, one thing that, that made me laugh was, was when you went on about, Oh my God, I'm t- turning into a course junkie because I think, I think so many of us who are on a journey of spiritual, emotional development growth are trying to fix that, you know, fill up that hole inside. I think a lot of people are looking for that. And I've met a lot of people, especially women, um, who do this who go on one course after another after another now I often wonder um because I I think I've I've found a lot of answers that I've been looking for on my journey um but I often wonder are they course junkies because they like that process and they're constantly searching and haven't found what they're looking for or is that in itself part of this thing of being part um, of a perpetual learner in life and that actually that learning process never really stops. So instead of perhaps being a course junkie, maybe at the end of the day, one's just a gross junkie. And that's not really a bad thing. Would you like to comment on that? I think it's a bit of both. And um, I would particularly cite AFEST um, because that's been where I've thought about that a lot myself, having attended two of them and really not enjoyed the first one at all and felt like a real outsider. And in fact, it exacerbated, because I was just going through the divorce, kind of all my feelings of loneliness and disconnect. It had the absolute opposite effect to what I was hoping quite a sizable investment in a course would have. Um, But I did enjoy the speakers and learnt a lot. Um, And then I nearly wasn't going to go again. And then I thought maybe that was a lot about where I was at in my life and my experience on that course. And so I went to the second one really to see how my experience would differ because I was in a different mindset. I was in a different place. And indeed that was the case. I had a much better experience. I made some very, I made a few, but very deep connections Uh, They have a thing called Give Back Day, and I was able to use all my charity marketing background, and I felt great about that. Um, But all that said, there are a proportion of people at AFEST who go to every AFEST, and I was a bit interested in that. I was like, oh, and of course, 
of course they can do and the themes are always different and they have different speakers so arguably they are lifelong learners and I think some of those people are lifelong learners and they always want to learn what's new all the hacks as they call them what are the latest brain hacks and life hacks and and I, I get that and I think that's great but I think there are some people who go for the community, for the connectivity, that it has truly become their tribe, their place where they connect with people. And I offer that only as an observation. I don't offer that in a right or a wrong way. I mean, the bottom line is if you've got the money <laughs> and that's, that's how you have a great group of friends that you meet up with a couple of times a year, and connect and at that same time learn something then you know why not and I, I I've had friends who said oh but you know some of it is rich people just doing this over and over again and I said hey I've seen rich people in the Bahamas who are alcoholics and sitting getting sozzled by lunchtime on you know Bahamian rum and there's many ways to be rich and if that's one of them then good luck to them and and I feel that's really very positive because also I know a lot of those people are philanthropists and and do things you know go out into the greater world and and do great so yeah so I think there is a danger that you don't quite know when and I'm going to have to say this carefully because of course you never arrive you know we are all all about the journey right we are all works in progress it's all about the journey but I think there is a danger for many of us and I do see that a lot in women that courses can become bright shiny things and and you you leave with a sense of euphoria and a sense of connection and for anybody who loves learning like I do and clearly you do and so many people do you feel great about it it's wonderful but then what you do is you you put that big folder uh somewhere and then you go on another course and I realized that I was in danger of becoming that person that I actually wasn't putting into my life and absorbing and putting into action all the wonderful things I'd learned, all the wonderful observations and hacks I'd, I'd, you know, you know, discovered and all the things about myself I'd discovered, you know, I was so busy going on another course that I wasn't actually ever integrating it into my life. So that's my caveat to people. And only you can recognize that in yourself. But I think that there is a trait in many people of doing that. Definitely. I mean, I guess the self-help industry or the personal development industry, as it's called these days, sounds so much better. Um, banks on that because uh, it's one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Well, so our time is slowly slipping away. It always goes so horribly fast. Um, if there was one thing where we talked about a lot of tips and tricks, and, and that's another thing I love about the book, is that there are very, very workable um, little bits of, of self-help little practices and exercises that you can do throughout and I think they really are doable they're they're not unrealistic goals and they make profound changes but if there was one thing that you could tell people who are listening maybe now that they could change in their lives that would make a huge impact what would that be? I think it would be and this is actually classic NLP, although we do use it in our rapid transformational therapy, I think, ask, what else could this mean? Because many times things happen every day, you know, somebody cuts you up in traffic and gives you a rude gesture or you're, 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 you're already tired and you're, you're queuing up to buy something and the assistant snaps your head off or they're not very nice to you or, you know, a loved one doesn't return your phone calls and you're like, oh, and oh, what have I done to annoy them or they don't love me anymore or, you know, whatever, or wow, maybe I was driving badly and I didn't realise. Ask yourself, what else could this mean? And by doing that, you start to flood your mind with possibilities of, well, maybe they're having a really bad day. Maybe their dog died this morning, maybe whatever. And it takes you out of you slightly. And I don't mean that in any pejorative way, because my other advice is to wear a bracelet like me that says, 
all I need is within me. <laughs> and so know that, you know, you are the center of you and you are the beginning, middle and end of your own universe. And the only person you'll go through your whole life with is you. But equally, other people's reactions to you and around you and for you, they're, they're dealing with their stuff. So that one question of what else could this mean actually takes that, that monkey chatter away um, really effectively about, oh, well, what have I done to them? Or why are they being horrible to me? It's a bit like, oh, maybe that person's having a really bad day. And I find that means that you really take that monkey chatter away. You're much more present. You will have a much better level of connection. Um, and yeah, and I also talk about intimacy, uh, which means into me see. So get the connection with yourself, learn to love yourself, and then all the great other connections will come. Wonderful. There are three little questions that I always ask all of my guests that come on. Um, I suspect one of them will be very easy for you to answer. Hopefully they all will be. But we talk a lot on this channel about, you know, mind, body, spirit. And I like to embody that in the words health happiness and serenity so mm -hmm. how do how do you actually define health what does that word mean for you well health is definitely health of mind and body for me um clearly um and there has to be a balance between the two the mind affects the body the body affects the mind so um you know i'm in my uh, i'm approaching my later 50s um, I've been through the menopause that was quite compromising at times to my health. I do all the things mindfully and I become educated about what would help me. So I look at my diet, I do yoga, I do mindfulness, I get enough sleep. So I address all the physical side of my body. I'm very careful about what I eat and what I drink. I, you know, I do have wine <laughs> you know I'm not I'm not a complete angel um but also mentally all of the mind hacks I'm talking about all of the ways of quieting that monkey chatter in the mind I, I have I tend to have quite a whirly gig mind I'm always on it I'm always like oh what next you know I'm, I'm the person who's driving along thinking oh we could improve that for doing that um you know and it can be exhausting so for me it's learning to still my mind learning to quieten my mind and I've learned how to do that over a 20 30 year period so it's that harmony between mind and body that's health for me um making healthy choices um yeah and does that answer that absolutely but it's there's a no wrong or right answer it's uh it's a, always a very personal um thing i find and i find it also interesting how different people look at it which is why i asked the question because it's interesting to know that we all actually have quite a different definition of health. What about happiness? What does Ros do to get happy, be happy? What do you enjoy doing? Well, first of all, I had to actually give myself permission to be happy um, because I, I did a course, <laughs> a course, <laughs> some years ago, <laughs> and we, it was defining uh, your kind of life goals and your go-to emotions. And when we shared in the group afterwards, I realized I didn't have happiness on my list and lots of other people did. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Why didn't I even think that happiness was available to me or that that was something that I should have? And I think because often in times of struggle and daily life when you're just getting on with it and battening down the hatches happiness seems like the cherry on the cake um and sometimes it's not always attainable so again I had to really think what makes me happy um and as I've explained earlier nature makes me happy living by the river makes me happy yoga makes me happy my cats make me happy um now and because I worked on it a lot last year and that was why I went to AFEST because it was on love and relationships and I studied with some of the top uh, relationship experts in the world including Esther Perel and oh I love her yes brilliant I love her love her love her love her and obviously Marissa and you know a bunch of other people um and I was two years out of my last marriage and ready very ready for a relationship um, and so I really thought about what would make me happy in a relationship who do I want to manifest in my life 
to take me through for however long it's going to be possible for the rest of my life in a happy way that we both are happy together and grow together. And I created a manifestation list and I'm very happy to tell you that that person is in my life. Wonderful. And also thanks to Marissa, and that is also mentioned in the book, um, who did a session on orgasms. <laughs> I am now, um, you know, able to take that part of my life and and my, you know, my relationship, my sex life, my living on the river, my what I do, my yoga, reading. It makes me very happy. And if I'm unhappy, they become go-to things to reset the day. Wonderful. And we've talked a lot, obviously, about, you know, stilling the mind. You talked about that just just a moment ago when we were talking about health. But serenity, for me, is a word that's very forgotten. And I think and it's an extremely important word. And, and it for me, it, it describes that those moments where you can just be and turn the noise down inside and, and be serene. So other than the standard practices of meditation and, and so on and so forth, do you have any other specific practices? Is it something that you actively try and achieve for a few moments in your day? How do you? Totally. Absolutely. And that, that time in the Bahamas, because I was living two and a half miles from anybody on a pink sand beach and surrounded by nature and I said it was the most calm and serene and spiritual time of my life. I then felt really sad when I came back to civilization, um, you know, with all the busyness around me that I felt like that felt like the Garden of Eden that was on the other side of a wall somewhere. And so I had to consciously learn how to create those moments for myself and how to be at one. A good example would be I was in London on Monday. I had a number of meetings. And A, I didn't overschedule the meetings because that used to be something I would do. I would be literally back to back. I created gaps in between them. And in between one meeting, which was in Fleet Street, and another meeting, which was in Shoreditch, I walked. And when I spotted a park, I walked through the park and I sat there and watched a squirrel for a minute. And so again, it, 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 it sounds incredibly easy, but it's, I'm now in a mindset of doing that and of making, making those moments and taking those moments every single day, those moments. And you're right. I consciously create moments and opportunities for serenity in my life. Great. Well, Roz, it just leaves me to thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk to me today um, and to very strongly recommend your book. I loved it. I thought it was, um, as I said, beautifully written. It's very intelligent. Um, and it's, um, I think it's just very real. It's a, it's a book that I think people, anybody who needs to get to that point where they feel like their life needs a reset go and get Roz's book. So thank you, Roz. I very much acknowledge the book. Uh, thank you for writing it. And thank you for being a therapist and helping other people through their lives. Keep doing the good work and keep us all posted on your journey because I think you, you have the ability to share very valuable messages to help other people in their lives. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's been wonderful. Thank you very much. And uh, great questions, actually. <laughs> Good. Glad you enjoyed them. I'll give you a vote of thanks there because I, you know, I, I, I have a radio show too. And um, yes, yeah, so I've learned from you today. So beautifully done. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, my absolute pleasure. And thank you for the compliment. And we'll put all of the links to uh, Rose's book, of course, and her websites um, on the bottom of the podcast notes. So please go ahead, look them up follow them and uh let's get ros out on the uh new new york bestsellers list <laughs> reads the book if they could leave an amazon review that would be most marvelous thank you very much <laughs> will do thanks ros so dear listeners i hope you enjoyed this week's episode with ros i thought it was an absolutely fascinating interview her book is really worth a read it's it's a it's a very different kind of self-help book as i said it's full of very inspirational quotes from literature and life and movies um it's a very real book i think it will really speak to you and it also contains some very practical advice 
As always, we're hoping that you will rate and review us on iTunes. Please do that because that's just podcast currency these days. And the more we get rated and reviewed, the more likely that other people get to hear these important messages. And at the end of the day, that's what London Heal is all about. It's bringing you information about your life, your health, um, to empower you so that you can make the right decisions, the decisions that are actually right for you. So please help support that mission by distributing the podcast to people that you think may be interested. Tell all your friends and also pop over and visit our Facebook page like that, please, and support us in any way that you can if you feel that this is of service and of value to you. Looking forward to having you with us again next week with the next wonderful guest. And as always, wishing you health, happiness and serenity. <laughs>